This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Jason Goodger, Commissioning Editor of BBC Science Focus magazine. In this week's episode, I'm speaking to Andrea Perino a scientist from the German Centre for Integrative Biodiversity Research and an expert on rewilding. Hi, Andrea. Thanks for taking the time to speak to me today. Hi, Jason. (laughs) So this idea of rewilding um, has been gathering momentum over the last few years. But for those who haven't heard the term, could you sort of briefly summarise the main idea for us, please? Mm -hmm. So... um... The main idea is basically to restore nature to a condition where it is able to sustain itself without uh, extensive uh, human management. And um, so basically you want to go from uh, a condition or a situation where you have to manage to something where you can decrease human management over time and ideally arrive at at a situation where you don't have to manage at all. So this idea is, as I said, recently started gathering momentum, but presumably it's something, to some extent, it's been practiced for hundreds of years. Um, That's true. (laughs) So um, the idea of restoration is actually quite similar from an ecological perspective. And the term rewilding has has been coined about uh, 
20 years ago, I think, or 25 years ago, I think in 1995. Um, and originally it was the idea of having um, large core protected areas, corridors between those areas and space for large carnivores. And from that, it kind of evolved into different um, streams or approaches maybe that go from very... Um, passive approaches where you really try to just do as little management as possible to more extreme ones where it's more about introduction or reintroduction of species or even at the most extreme backbreeding of species that have gone extinct already. So um, this all somehow fits into the concept. And um, But maybe one distinctive aspect to it is that it's, that it's, explicitly also about creating benefits for people, which is not so much in the focus of um, traditional restoration. So it's really also about um, getting across uh, the aesthetics, for instance, of, of wild nature and um, get people to enjoy that. So you touched on that. Um, rewilding covers both plants and animals. So do you take different approaches to, to different species or, di or different types of rewilding? Mm, so, of course, you may need to take different approaches depending a bit on uh, what is the ecosystem that you have and what is the condition that it is in. So it's, of course, a difference if you want to rewild an area that is already pretty intact versus one that maybe has been used agriculturally for centuries, but I wouldn't necessarily make a distinction between, or I, rewilding doesn't necessarily focus on a certain species or just animals or just plants. So it's more about um, restoring processes that work together. And this may involve um, both plants and animals. So for instance, if you increase connectivity between um, ecosystems, this of course means, okay, animals can move from one part to the other, but they may also um, they may also be a vehicle for plant seeds, for instance. So even if you don't focus on the plants, you may also create a benefit for the plants and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. So in in your sort of specific um, field of research, I believe you've identified three key components involved in rewilding. Could you just talk us through that, please? That's right. So that's the processes that I just mentioned. So. There's um, yeah the connectivity that I just uh, that I just mentioned, which means um, individuals, plants or animals are able to move between different um, habitats um, and also within a certain ecosystem. Uh, then the second one is the trophic complexity or trophic integrity. That means that you have um, several species on all the trophic levels, and you also have a certain degree of um, of what we call functional redundancy. So that means that you may have several species that have different different traits, but they all can fulfill a certain function, like for instance, uh, seed dispersal. So if you have one species that is affected by maybe a pest outbreak, you still have another species that can still fulfill this function. And the third one is... Um, is natural disturbance or stochastic disturbance as opposed to um, anthropogenic or human disturbance. And um, the natural disturbance as um, in contrast to the human disturbance is often more random. So you can have 
disturbance events all over the landscape, and some of them will last for a short time, some of them longer, and that creates or can create sort of a habitat mosaic and more niches for different species. So that is the third component um, that we identified as being important for the resilience of an ecosystem. All of them um, ideally work together. So um, as an example, a large carnivore um, adds to the trophic complexity, but it can also add to the disturbance of an ecosystem because it feeds on other species or, um, yeah, so as an example for the inter interrelatedness of these processes. Yeah, so perhaps um, a bit too obvious a question, but what are the benefits of, of rewilding environments? You know, why should we be doing it? So first, I think we should do restoration <laughs> for a, a number of reasons. First, we're, um, we're facing a biodiversity crisis, as everyone knows, um, at least since last year when the, uh, the IPBES um, global assessment came out. Um, so we need to restore habitats and need to um, make space for, for species and allow them to recover. Um, and of course, there are lots of different approaches, and I would not say that rewilding is the one and only approach, but um, especially in, in regions where you have landscape abandonment um, because of agricultural abandonment, for instance, it can be a nice way to restore these areas. And it's, um, it can be cost-effective because you plan to reduce the human management. And also, um, yeah, as I said in the beginning, it really focuses also on creating benefits for people and also um, alternative income opportunities, for instance, uh, via tourism or um, yeah, wildlife watching activities and so on. So this is something that's also part of the planning, let's say. Um, yeah. Yeah, great. So do some, um, how do, I say, do some environments respond better than others to, to this kind of, of work? That's hard to say, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I think some environments will need more or less management in the beginning, depending on how degraded they are when you start with a certain rewilding um, management plan. So um, sometimes you will have to remove um, infrastructure that may hinder, for instance, the re disturbance regime or the connectivity. And in other cases, you may need to do less. And of course, I'm struggling a bit with the better. I think like the trajectory that the ecosystem takes can be very different because of its context and its, its characteristics. And also, um, admittedly, <laughs> there are not that many empirical studies that actually show what really happens. So that's something that I want to be transparent about. So a lot has been written about rewilding um, in the past couple of years, but it's pretty difficult to, um, to design field studies to actually look at the effect of rewilding because it's it's really a long-term endeavor, <laughs> as you as you can imagine, as any ecological study or many of them. Um, it ideally it happens on pretty large scales, um, yeah. And ecological studies are usually really complex, so it's hard to capture all the processes and so on. So, um, yeah, it's um, it's still hard to project what what's happening in rewilding areas on a long term. 
Yeah, so sort of following on from that, are there any um, any like case studies, success stories, like gold standard rewilding projects that you always refer to? Um, there are several, but yeah, there are several very different ones, and not all of them would call themselves rewilding. One that's uh, one that's really, I think, kind of a flagship project, even though they don't call it rewilding, but it follows the principles. Is the case of the Swiss National Park that has um, become a protected area more than 100 years ago, I think in 1914. And uh, they really, they were like conservation pioneers and they saw what agriculture does to the, to the uh, this alpine environment. So they really decided to take this core area and put it under complete protection. And at the same time, they started um, ecological monitoring on, on several plots. So they monitored the, the number and the composition of plant species in the region. They monitored the comeback of, um, of different ungulate species um, and so on. So this is really a nice, um, a nice project where you can nicely see how it develops so they could find an increase in the number of, of um, yeah, grassland species um, also now there are predators coming back only recently, wolf and bear. And they also do um, um, socioeconomic monitoring. So they ask the tourists that come there um, about their willingness to pay and their uh, motivation to come there and so on. And they could also show that the um, the revenue from these tourists has increased um, quite significantly uh, with um, through this park. So that's, I think, one of the nicest... Um, examples where there's actual management. Then there's also, of course, the example of the Chernobyl exclusion zone, although this, um, I mean, that's also an example of how how an ecosystem can recover, um, but it hasn't, of course, been planned as a conservation um, project and um, not to imply that (laughs) that is the way to go, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, talking about um, other types of conservation efforts. Um, so how does um, rewilding compare to something like um, straightforward replanting or reforestation? Um, I really think it's um, it's the scope and, uh, well, what you want to achieve with it. So with re, uh, replanting of trees, for instance, you, you focus on this one aspect of an ecosystem. You want to increase the number of trees. Whereas in rewilding, you really want to improve the functionality and the interaction of all the processes. So it's maybe a more comprehensive view on the entire ecosystem. And in some cases, maybe this may involve replanting trees or uh, reintroducing plant species that that um, have that have been lost to the area, but only if it serves the purpose of increasing a certain process or several processes. So, yeah, that's, I think, the main difference. Do you ever get um, an environment that is um, sustained so much damage that it's, there's, it, you can no longer be rewilded whatsoever? I don't know. <laughs> but um, again, with regard to... <laughs> Uh, looking to looking at the Chernobyl exclusion zone, I think that I mm, mean there's hardly any bigger impact 
um, I suppose, or I cannot imagine a much bigger impact than than the nuclear meltdown. And still, after a couple of years, um, the environment started to recover, and now they have basically, yeah, complete trophic um, integrity and um, and um, I think an ecosystem that's pretty well in equilibrium or in this dynamic balance that you want to achieve. So I. I don't think there's, okay, maybe if you have like, I don't know, a backyard that's only concrete, it's going to take <laughs> quite long until it starts to recover. But uh, in general, I wouldn't say that it's, that there's a hopeless, hopeless case. Mm, that's good. So what are some of the main difficulties um, faced by rewilding projects? I think a major difficulty is, um, is still the acceptance of the local um, the local people that are directly um, affected by the <clears throat> by the um, by rewilding projects. So um, we see this here in Germany with the comeback of the wolves that had that has started thirty years ago. Um, that there's a lot of resistance against um against these large carnivores coming back into our into our landscapes and i think that is really often a an issue that needs to be addressed so that's also why it's really important in my point of view to to plan these projects um in a very participatory way and really from the beginning involve the people that have to live with it <laughs> because um i don't think that it can be successful if you don't get those people on board with your project and you really figure out, okay, what is what is an acceptable level of, um, I don't know, autonomous nature <laughs> or wildness, if you will. Um, what can we deal with? What What is actually beneficial? What would we like to have? And what is not okay? So I think this is really the communication to the people, I think, is is key and is often an, the biggest issue. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's, comes on to uh, something else I was going to ask. So uh, quite often with um, things like this, you mentioned the predatory species. Um, and a lot of people get kind of nervous about, oh, you know, I don't want wolves walking around, you know, it, it, it's dangerous or something. So why do we need the predatory species in, in these ecosystems? So, um, well, first, I think there's an intrinsic value <laughs> to to, uh, to any species, and also, of course, to the predatory and the predatory species are the large carnivores. Um, so we don't want to lose them in general. But also, of course, they they have important functions, as I mentioned before. So they, um, for instance, they're important to keep um, ungulate species at check. They can fulfill certain um, sanitary functions if they feed on carrion. Um, they can um, they can contribute to the seed dispersal because they usually travel over large distances. Uh, so they have quite like a number of different functions that they can fulfill in an ecosystem, and um, of course, these can be to some extent be. Um, how do you say, replaced maybe by human management. So, of course, you can hunt instead of having wolves um, controlling uh, herbivore populations. 
Um, but yeah, as I said, I mean, we also, we don't want to lose these species um, for their intrinsic value. So yeah, well, I personally prefer to have them in the landscape, <laughs> even if they cannot fulfill the functions completely, because of course, there's always this, this um, trade-off, let's say, with the human use of the landscape, which is of course also totally fine and, um, and necessary. So it's also not, it's not about pushing out people so you can have the wolf there. Um, it's more about trying to uh, reach coexistence. Um, yeah, and maybe as a, as another argument, um, there's there is a lot of focus on large mammals in rewilding, and it's also because due to their large body size and large or, or their habitat requirements, um, they are also the most vulnerable to habitat loss. So you lose the large large species first if you lose habitat, which is also why. Um, a lot of restoration and especially rewilding focuses on them a lot. Yeah, so you mentioned um, human management there. So how, what part does human uh, management play in rewilding? So say once we've, we're, we've successfully, let's say, rewilded uh, a certain environment or area, what, what do we do afterwards? Do we, have, do we just let nature take its course or do, or do we have to manage it and keep an eye on it? Mm. Well, that again, depends a bit on, on the area, maybe also on the size and the location of the area. If it's really remote, um, you'll probably be able to reach a state where you don't need any human management at all. But in other cases, um, I think you will, in, or in many cases, I think you will need a certain low level of human management. So maybe to um, use the Swiss National Park example again, they basically put a put a hunting ban on the entire area already in, in the early um, 20th century. But then sometime in the 60s, um, they had so much red deer that, and the red deer was also leaving the park and like um, going into the agricultural fields around and so on. So they did like a hunting event only once or twice, I think, um, to reduce the numbers and to also push them back into the national park. And this really helped to um, to yeah, to have or to increase the acceptance of the farmers that were living around the park and were trying to make a living. So like these kinds of um, management actions, I think will will often be needed. Um, yeah. Yeah, so one of the one of the big sort of stories in science at the moment is rising global temperatures due to climate change. So um, what sort of role can these rewilding projects have in, 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 in helping this cause? Yeah, so in some rewilding um, projects, you may have, for instance, um, reforestation because you don't, um, uh, you don't manage the forest anymore. So you may have well, first succession and then reforestation. So that may increase the uh, carbon storage potential. And the same with... Um, restoring or protecting, for instance, peat bogs, which are uh, really a really important carbon sink. Um, And this can, of course, also be part of rewilding um, projects or rewilding rewilding plans. Yeah, so just on on kind of a smaller scale, say um, I've got my own backyard, you know, it's a fairly good, decent size. I mean, is there any, any benefit to me sort of 
doing my own mini rewilding project in my backyard and saying, I'll have that, I'll just let, let that area stay, you know, go, go the way that nature takes it. I think so, yes, because, um, I mean, you will, of course, not reach a very high level of, of wildness, let's say, because you will not be able to introduce carnivores or, uh, <laughs> I don't know, um, have wild streams in your backyard unless you have a really great backyard. Um, but you can also um, increase the number of plant species that you have, or you can... Um, You can have plant species that are um, are feeding that well, that uh, insects can feed on, and these can can increase the insect diversity in your city. Also, because it, like these little um, islands, let's say, can act as um, as um, stepping stones for the insects, so they can actually um, use larger areas of the city. So you would contribute to the species diversity, but also to the connectivity within your city if you had like a little um, bee meadow um, in your garden. So yeah, I think the principle of rewilding can be applied on, on basically any scale. Um, so this idea of allowing more disturbance, allowing more species and increasing um, the connectivity, I think that can be that can be improved with very little measures to, to a certain extent, yeah. That was Dr. Andrea Perino talking about rewilding. For more of the latest goings-on in the science world, pick up a copy of BBC Science Focus magazine or head to sciencefocus.com. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Science Focus podcast, then please do leave us a review wherever you listen. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.